Chapter Six, Part Two of Brewing by A. Cheston Chapman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Six, Part Two. Having now considered the nature of the yeast as a living organism, and having dealt with its food requirements, we may pass to a consideration of the interesting and important phenomenon which it is its special function to excite, and which is known as fermentation. Few chapters in science are more fascinating than that dealing with the elucidation of the mechanism of the process of alcoholic fermentation, a process which was deliberately carried out thousands of years ago, and which would scarcely fail to attract the attention of the first man who left a bowl of honey exposed for sufficient time to the air. To deal at length with this question would be impossible within the limits assigned to this book, and as many of the earlier theories are now only of historical interest, I propose to go no further back than the later views of Liebig. From the chemical point of view, fermentation consists essentially in the decomposition by means of yeast of a carbohydrate such as dextroglucose into alcohol and carbon dioxide according to the equation C6H12O6 D-glucose equals 2C2H6O alcohol plus 2CO2 carbon dioxide. As a matter of fact, the chemical reactions involved are by no means so simple as the above equation would indicate, since whilst 95% of the change takes place in accordance with that equation, about 5% of the sugar is broken up into glycerin, succinic acid, and other products. A small proportion of the sugar is also utilized by the yeast for the formation of new cells. In 1839, Liebig put forward the view that a ferment, e.g. yeast, is a nitrogenous substance in a state of molecular instability, and that it was a peculiarity of such substances that they were able by mere contact to communicate this state to certain compounds such as the sugars, causing these to break down into simpler substances such as alcohol and carbon dioxide. This theory of contact decomposition as the result of molecular vibration held the field for more than 30 years but during the latter part of its life it was vigorously attacked by Pasteur, who was then engaged upon his epoch-making biochemical researches. The controversy was a long and vigorous one, and in the end Liebig so far modified his original views as to admit that the fermentation process was in some way connected with the life activity of the organism producing it. But he adhered so far to his earlier view as to hold that this life activity was not in itself the exciting cause but was only necessary for the formation of some protein-like substance which actually brought about the decomposition. This theory, which was put forward shortly before his death in 1873, is of special interest in connection with the view which is now universally held as the result of comparatively recent observations. To Pasteur belongs the credit of having been the first to prove definitely that fermentation was a physiological phenomenon that is to say that it was intimately connected with the development and general vital activity of the yeast cell. He found that when a small quantity of yeast was introduced into a fermentable liquid saturated with air, oxygen, the oxygen was quickly absorbed and the yeast multiplied freely. He further found that when the whole of the free oxygen had been used up, fermentation proceeded vigorously but was accompanied by comparatively little yeast reproduction. From experiments of this kind, made with several organized ferments, and under various conditions, he was led to the discovery that whilst certain organisms were only capable of living when supplied with plenty of free oxygen, others could survive the total deprivation of that element, 
and when so deprived appeared to function most actively as ferments. From this he was led to conclude that there was a very intimate connection between the phenomenon of fermentation and life in the absence of air. Organisms which required free oxygen he called aerobic, and those which could live without it anaerobic. Yeast was an organism capable of living under both sets of conditions, but it was only as an anaerobic that it functioned at all actively as an alcoholic ferment. It may be of interest to quote Pasteur's own words. Fermentation by yeast, that is to say, by the type of ferments properly so called, is presented to us, in a word, as the direct consequences of the processes of nutrition, assimilation, and life, when these are carried on without the agency of free oxygen. The heat required in the accomplishment of that work must have necessarily been borrowed from the decomposition of the fermentable matter, that is, from the saccharine substance, which, like other unstable substances, liberates heat in undergoing decomposition. Fermentation by means of yeast appears, therefore, to be easily connected with the property possessed by this minute cellular plant of performing its respiratory functions, somehow or other, with oxygen existing combined with sugar. Its fermentive power varies considerably between two limits fixed, by the greatest and least possible access of free oxygen, which the plant has in the process of nutrition. If we supply it with sufficient quantity of free oxygen for the necessities of its life, nutrition and respiratory combustions, in other words, if we cause it to live after the manner of a mold, properly so called, it ceases to be a ferment. On the other hand, if we deprive the yeast of air entirely, or cause it to develop in a saccharine medium, deprived of free oxygen, it will multiply just as if air were present, although with less activity, and under these circumstances its fermentative character will be most marked. In a word, the yeast cell required oxygen for its vital activities, and if deprived of free oxygen, would obtain that which it needed by breaking up the fermentable sugars and utilizing the oxygen which was supposed to be liberated in the process. This theory of life without free oxygen was almost universally accepted as an explanation of the process of fermentation for a period of nearly thirty years, although it obviously did not supply a very clear insight into the mechanism of the change. It purported to tell us why the yeast cell decomposed the sugar, but not how it did it, and had any chemist been challenged during that period to state more precisely what occurred when the sugar molecule was broken up into alcohol, carbon dioxide, and other substances, he would probably have referred it to some special vital force resident in and indissolubly connected with the living protoplasm. In 1892, Adrian J. Brown, in the course of an investigation on certain phenomena connected with the reproduction of yeast, obtained some results which rendered the life-without-free-oxygen theory quite untenable. By applying for the first time the hematometer to the counting of the cells, he found that when yeast was introduced into a fermentable liquid such as wort, the cells increased to a definite number for a given volume, and then ceased to multiply. The limit of increase was within certain limits independent of the food supply in the liquid, and also of the number of cells originally added, provided that the number did not exceed the maximum number to which the cells would increase under normal conditions in the liquid in question. If, on the other hand, a number of cells exceeding the maximum were added, little or no multiplication occurred. Hence, by working with the number of cells in excess of the maximum, multiplication could be avoided and fermentation phenomena could be studied under conditions which practically eliminated that disturbing factor. 
Working this way, Brown found that aerobic conditions did not inhibit fermentation, but that on the contrary a plentiful supply of free oxygen actually stimulated it, and so was forced to the conclusion that Pasteur's view could no longer be upheld. There can be no doubt that the yeast cell does require free oxygen for its development and for the purpose of carrying out its life activities, and although its fermentative vigor may appear for a time to be independent of that element, a fresh supply must be forthcoming, or the yeast will languish and die. In 1897, a further and very great advance was made in our knowledge of the nature of the fermentation process, for in that year E. Buchner showed that the liquid contents of the yeast cell, when added to a fermentable liquid, are able to excite fermentation without the presence of any cells at all. He ground up pressed yeast with quartz sand, or kieselgur, so as to rupture as many of the cells as possible, and after adding a little water and wrapping in a cloth, subjected the mixture to a pressure of about 500 atmospheres, 3 or 4 tons per square inch. In this way he obtained a clear, slightly opalescent liquid, which when added to a solution of sugar very soon brought about its fermentation, precisely as if yeast itself had been used. At first it was objected that small particles of living protoplasm had passed through, and that it was in these that the fermentation activity resided. This, however, was shown not to be the case, for not only could the expressed yeast juice be evaporated to dryness at a low temperature without losing its activity, but it was capable of bringing about fermentation in the presence of certain substances, such as chloroform and arsenites, which are protoplasm poisons, and are known to exert a powerfully inhibitory effect on the life of the cell. As further proof that living protoplasm was not in question, it was found possible to filter the juice through a Chamberlain filter without destroying its activity. From these and many other experiments, Buchner concluded that fermentation was the result of the activity of an enzyme secreted by the yeast cell, to which he gave the name zymase. As in the case of other enzymes, the activity of zymase is very dependent on external conditions. Thus, when the yeast juice is heated to a temperature of about 50 degrees Celsius, coagulation occurs and the filtered liquid has no longer any appreciable action on sugar solutions. In the same way, its activity is very greatly reduced or altogether destroyed by certain substances, such as prussic acid. The next advance in our knowledge of the mechanism of fermentation is due to Hardin and his colleagues. Hardin found that when he submitted yeast juice to filtration through a Chamberlain filter impregnated with gelatin, he obtained a filtrate and also a residue on the filter. On experimenting with these two portions into which the yeast juice had been resolved, he found that neither was possessed of any power of bringing about fermentation. When, however, the two portions were mixed, their activity was restored. In this way Hardin was led to recognize that the enzyme the portion which remained on the filter, is powerless to produce fermentation unless in contact with the portion which had passed through, the active constituent of which he designated the coenzyme. The solution of the coenzyme, the true chemical nature of which is still undetermined, retains its activity even after boiling. A further flood of light has been thrown on the nature of the fermentation process as the result of Hardin's investigations on the effect of adding alkaline phosphates to sugar solutions in course of fermentation. Such addition was always followed by a rapid increase in the evolution of carbon dioxide, and it was found that a definite relationship existed between the amount of phosphate added and the volume of carbon dioxide liberated, 
a molecular proportion of the phosphate always resulting in the disengagement of a molecular proportion of carbon dioxide. An attempt to ascertain precisely what happened to the added phosphate in these experiments resulted in the discovery of a new compound consisting of hexose sugar residue and phosphoric acid, apparently having the composition C6H10O4, paren H2PO4, close paren 2, and designated hexone phosphate. When the phosphate is added to a fermentable solution in the presence of zymase and the coenzyme, it is supposed that one molecule of sugar, dextrose, breaks down into alcohol and carbon dioxide, whilst a second molecule reacts with the phosphate to form the hexose phosphate, the two reactions proceeding in accordance with the following combined equation. 2 C6H12O6 plus 2 Na2HPO4 equals 2 CO2 plus 2 C2H6O plus 2 H2O plus C6H10O4 paren Na2PO4 close paren 2. In practice, it is well known that warts containing only a limited amount of phosphate but relatively very large proportions of fermentable sugar are capable of undergoing complete fermentation, and it is clear that according to the above view, this could not happen unless the phosphate were in some way or other regenerated. Hardin considers that the yeast cells contain an enzyme to which he has given the name hexosophosphatase, the function of which is to effect the hydrolysis of the hexosophosphate in the following manner. C6H10O4, paren, Na2PO4, close paren, 2, plus 2H2O, equals C6H12O6 plus 2Na2HPO4. Summarizing the above statements, the following may be regarded as the most recent view of the fermentation change. The enzyme, zymase, and its coenzyme together act on the sugar, hexose, in the presence of the phosphate, in such a way that one half of the sugar is decomposed into alcohol and carbon dioxide, whilst the other half unites with the phosphate to form the hexosophosphate above referred to. The phosphate is thus rendered temporarily inoperative, but is liberated by the action of the enzyme, hexosophosphatase, which reproduces the sugar and phosphate, and so the cycle of change is ready to be repeated. This theory at least explains all the facts at present ascertained, but there can be little doubt that very much work remains to be done before we can feel satisfied that we know exactly what happens when a molecule of sugar is decomposed at the instance of a yeast cell. As in all cases where living organisms are concerned, the process is one of very considerable complexity, and compared with the apparent ease and rapidity with which the wonderful changes summed up in the term fermentation are accomplished by the yeast organisms, the triumphs of the modern organic chemist pale into insignificance. In the words of Professor Meldola, when we can transform sugar into alcohol in the laboratory at ordinary temperatures by the action of a synthesized nitrogenous organic compound, when we can convert glucose into citric acid in the same way that citromyces can affect this transformation, then may the chemist proclaim with confidence that there is no longer any mystery in vital chemistry. Attention has already been called to the fact that the alcohol and carbon dioxide, although by far the most important, are not the only products of alcoholic fermentation, and it has been stated that glycerin, 
succinic acid, and various higher alcohols are formed at the same time. Recent investigations have thrown a great deal of light on the formation of these byproducts, and it has been found that some of them at least are not formed from the sugar at all. Thus, Ehrlich has shown that the higher alcohols, so-called fusel oil, result from the action of yeast on the amino acids, some of which are always present in malt wort. Leucine, alpha-amino-isocaproic acid, for example, yielding amylic alcohol. In this reaction, ammonia, which is assimilated by the yeast, and carbon dioxide are liberated, and an alcohol is formed containing one atom of carbon less than the original amino acid. This reaction is probably of considerable importance from the point of view of the nutrition of the yeast, as it appears to indicate the means by which the yeast supplies itself with nitrogen in a readily assimilable form. The succinic acid, which is a constant product of fermentation to the extent of about 0.5%, appears to be derived from the dicarboxylic amino acid, glutamic acid. It has already been stated that some of the wild yeasts produce bitter products, and certain species, e.g. Saccharomyces anomalous, give rise to the production of pleasant-smelling ethereal substances such as are present in some fruit juices. It will, therefore, be understood that these by-products are of more than scientific interest, since the flavor of a fermented beverage is not unfrequently dominated by them, and its commercial value either greatly increased or greatly reduced according to their nature. In addition to zymase and the hexosophosphatase, the yeast cell contains a number of other enzymes, each of which has its specific function, and all of which are of considerable importance in connection with the nutrition and life activities of the organism. Incidentally, some of these are, as will be seen, of considerable technical importance. So far as is known, the hexoses alone, and of these only four, viz. D-glucose, D-mannose, D-galactose, and D-fructose, are directly fermentable by yeast, and before fermentation of other sugars can take place, it is therefore necessary that they should be converted into one or other of these hexoses. This is in all cases affected by enzymes. Thus cane sugar is not directly fermentable, but has in the first instance to be converted by the enzyme invertase into a mixture of D-glucose, dextrose, and D-fructose, levulose, in accordance with the following equation. C12H22O11, cane sugar, plus H2O, equals C6H12O6, dextrose, plus C6H12O6, levulose. Maltose has the same empirical formula as cane sugar and is, prior to fermentation, converted by the enzyme maltase into two molecules of dextrose, C12H22O11, maltose, plus H2O, equals 2 C6H12O6, dextrose. Milk sugar, lactose, again, is not directly fermentable, but has first to be resolved by the enzyme lactase into two other hexose sugars, dextrose and galactose. C12H22O11, lactose, plus H2O, equals C6H12O6, dextrose, plus C6H12O6, galactose. In this connection, a point of considerable interest may just be mentioned in passing, namely that the enzymes exhibit a remarkable discrimination between certain carbohydrates which otherwise resemble one another very closely indeed. Whilst D-glucose, D-mannose, D-fructose, and D-galactose are fermentable, 
the optical isomerides of these carbohydrates that is to say forms which differ only in respect of their action on polarized light are unfermentable in order that a given sugar other than the four above mentioned may be fermented by yeast it is essential that the yeast in question should contain the enzyme necessary for its conversion into one or other of the above hexoses now yeasts of different species do not all contain the same enzymes and it therefore happens that a certain yeast may be capable of fermenting one carbohydrate and incapable of fermenting another of the enzymes invertase appears to be the most widely distributed among the saccharomyces and consequently the great majority of yeasts are capable of bringing about the fermentation of cane sugar on the other hand lactase occurs in only a comparatively small number of species and consequently a great many yeasts including the ordinary culture yeasts saccharomyces cerevisiae are incapable of fermenting milk sugar the following table may be of interest as showing at a glance the behavior of certain of the yeast species towards several of the more commonly occurring sugars the sign plus indicates that the yeast in question is capable and the sign zero that it is incapable of bringing about fermentation yeast saccharomyces cerevisiae dextrose plus levulose plus minose plus galactose plus maltose plus cane sugar plus milk sugar zero saccharomyces cerevisiae carlsberg dextrose plus levulose plus mannose plus galactose plus maltose plus cane sugar plus milk sugar zero saccharomyces pastorianus dextrose plus levulose plus mannose plus galactose plus maltose plus cane sugar plus milk sugar zero saccharomyces ellipsodius dextrose plus labulose plus mannose plus galactose plus maltose plus cane sugar plus milk sugar zero saccharomyces marxarenus dextrose plus labulose plus mannose plus galactose plus maltose zero cane sugar plus milk sugar zero saccharomyces exogeus dextrose plus labulose plus mannose zero galactose plus maltose zero cane sugar plus milk sugar zero saccharomyces ludwigii dextrose plus labulose plus mannose plus galactose zero maltose zero cane sugar plus milk sugar zero saccharomyces anomalous dextrose plus levulose plus mannose plus galactose zero maltose zero cane sugar plus milk sugar zero saccharomyces fragilis dextrose plus levulose plus mannose plus galactose plus maltose zero cane sugar plus milk sugar plus kefir dextrose plus labulose plus mannose plus galactose zero maltose zero cane sugar plus milk sugar plus it may be that the secretion of any particular enzyme is so far as is known a very constant attribute of a given species 
and that it has not been found possible by varying the nature of the food supply or the general environment of a given species of yeast to cause it to secrete other enzymes than those normally present. This selective behavior of the various species of yeast toward the different carbohydrates constitutes, in fact, a very valuable method of differentiation and identification. In addition to these sucroclastic, i.e. sugar-splitting enzymes, the yeast cell contains one or more proteolytic enzymes, that is, enzymes capable of acting upon protein matters and of converting them by hydrolytic changes into similar substances. Since the enzymes themselves are, chemically speaking, closely allied to the proteins, it might be thought that a proteolytic enzyme would attack the other enzymes and so bring about their destruction. As a matter of fact, such is the case, and under certain conditions, zymase is attacked by the proteolytic enzyme of the yeast cell with the consequent destruction of its activity. There is a good deal of evidence, however, that in the living cell there exists a substance whose special function it is to protect the enzymes from this action. There can be very little doubt that the fermentative and other changes above referred to take place within the yeast cell, and that the alcohol and carbon dioxide having been formed in that wonderful little laboratory, then diffused through the cell membrane into the surrounding liquid. Having given a necessary brief outline of the more important phenomena of fermentation, both in their biological and chemical aspects, we may now return to a consideration of the process from the more purely technological side. It will be remembered that to the cooled wort collected in the fermenting vessel, the necessary amount of yeast is added, and fermentation is allowed to proceed. Page 73. The fermenting tun in its simplest form consists of a square or round vessel, usually constructed of some suitable wood, but often lined with copper or occasionally at the present time with aluminum. This vessel is fitted with a coil through which cold water may be circulated for the purpose of controlling the temperature of the fermenting wort, and an arrangement known technically as a parachute, which is capable of adjustment in a vertical direction, and which serves for the removal of the yeast formed during the process and its transference into the yeast backs or store vessels below. In Figure 12, A is the attemperating coil, B the parachute, from the pipe C of which the yeast drops into a vessel on the floor beneath, and D a movable skimming arrangement for collecting and guiding the yeast into the opening of the parachute. In the simplest system, known as the skimming system, the fermentation commences and ends in the one vessel, the beer being racked either directly from this vessel into the trade casks or transferred to a racking vessel for purposes of convenience. In the latter, little or no fermentation occurs and the beer is rarely allowed to remain in it for more than 24 hours. One advantage of this vessel is that it enables the brewer, when necessary, to add sugar solution, or priming as it is called, in bulk instead of to the individual casks. In other systems of fermentation as practiced in this country, the first part of the fermentation only is allowed to take place in the original fermenting tun, after which the partially fermented wort is run into other vessels for the completion of the process, these vessels being either rectangular wooden vessels known as dropping squares or connected casks of special construction known as unions. The latter system is typical of the working adopted in the breweries of Burton-on-Trent, and the vessels in question are usually known as Burton Unions. Other systems are in vogue, some of which are peculiar to certain parts of the country, but whatever may be the precise nature of the plant employed, the essential process is substantially the same, and consists in the conversion of the fermentable sugars of the wort 
into alcohol and carbon dioxide in the manner described above. The amount of yeast used by the brewer for the purpose of bringing about fermentation varies somewhat according to the strength of the wort and other circumstances, but may be given roughly as from one to three pounds of fairly solid yeast per barrel of 36 gallons. After the addition of the yeast, fermentation commences almost immediately, and at the end of a few hours the liquid in the tun will be found to be covered with a frothy or creamy layer. This rapidly increases in volume and a little later forms a fairly thick covering of very irregular surface, which is known as the rocky head. This in turn undergoes a change in appearance, becoming more compact in character and presenting a more even surface. At this stage the process of fermentation is rendered evident by the fact that the carbon dioxide rising to the surface of the liquid passes through this yeasty layer, forming large bladdery bubbles which quickly burst and are immediately replaced by others. To anyone watching the contents of such a tun the whole of the yeasty head or covering will be found to be in a continual state of motion, owing to the escape of carbon dioxide gas. At this stage the newly formed yeast is skimmed off for the first time, or the partially fermented wort is transferred to the dropping square or union in which the fermentation is allowed to complete itself. During the progress of the fermentation the temperature of the fermenting wort rises owing to the vital activities of the yeast and has for several reasons to be held in check. From 60 degrees Fahrenheit, at which it is customary to add the yeast, the temperature rises to about 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 75 degrees Fahrenheit, an increase beyond these temperatures being prevented by the passage of cold water through the attemperating coils above mentioned. It is not within the scope of this book to describe in detail the process of fermentation as practiced in the brewery, and it may therefore be assumed that the fermentation of the wort is completed and the liquid, now no longer wort but beer, is ready to be transferred to the trade casks or to be otherwise dealt with. From all that has been said above, it will be clear that the essential feature of the fermentation process is the conversion of maltose into alcohol and carbon dioxide through the agency of the yeast organism. As stated on page 105, the maltose has first to undergo conversion by the enzyme maltase into dextrose, and it is in reality this sugar which is broken up and furnishes the alcohol and carbon dioxide. As fermentation proceeds, the sugar is, of course, replaced by alcohol, and the carbon dioxide simultaneously produced is liberated into the air, so that the specific gravity of the fermenting wort decreases continuously until the process is complete. This reduction of density is technically known as the attenuation, and as has been pointed out, page 37, is, within certain limits, capable of being controlled by the brewer during the mashing process. During fermentation the whole of the free maltose disappears, and it is also probable that some of the lower type of maltodextrins are degraded to maltose and fermented by the ordinary so-called primary yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. At racking, therefore, the beer will contain the following substances. Products formed as a result of the fermentation process. 1. Alcohol. 2. Carbon dioxide. 3. A little glycerin. 4. Traces of higher alcohols. Succinic acid, etc. Unfermented constituents of the original hopped wort. 5. Maltodextrins of various kinds. 6. The so-called stable dextrin. 7. Proteins and other nitrogenous substances not utilized by the yeast. 8. A little mineral matter. 9. Bitters and other substances derived from the hops. The above does not pretend to be a complete list, 
for beer contains many substances in minute proportions, but it is intended merely to show at a glance the more important constituents, and how these are roughly to be divided between the products of fermentation and those present in the original wort. Analyses of a few representative types of beer will be found in the appendix. At the moment of racking, the primary fermentation has spent itself, that is to say, the whole of the readily fermentable carbohydrate matter has been decomposed and replaced by its equivalent of alcohol. A reference to the above table will show, however, that it still contains a certain amount of carbohydrate matter, which, as has been pointed out on page 33, is necessary for the cask or secondary fermentation. Without this, the beer would rapidly become flat and undrinkable, and the brewer endeavors by every means at his disposal to ensure that the proportion and the character of these residual carbohydrate matters, maltodextrins, shall be properly suited to the class of beer he is brewing, that is to say, shall be such that the beer comes rapidly into condition on the one hand, or undergoes a slow and protracted cask fermentation on the other. Whilst the higher type, maltodextrins, are not appreciably attacked by ordinary yeast, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, they are reduced to free maltose by the hydrolytic action of certain of the secondary yeasts, e.g. Saccharomyces pasteurianus, and it is these yeasts which are largely responsible for the true secondary fermentation of stock beers. These yeasts are almost invariably present in very small proportions in the ordinary pitching yeast, i.e., the yeast added to the fermenting tun to start the fermentation, and are often conveyed to the wort from the air during the process of cooling. In any case, they are rarely, if ever, absent from the beer at racking, although during the main fermentation they have been kept severely in check, owing to the greater activity and enormous numerical preponderance of cells of the culture yeast. At the end of the primary fermentation, however, the latter begin to find the environment unsuitable, and the secondary yeasts, which are better able to attack the maltodextrins, come into play and rapidly increase in numbers. In the case of mild ales and certain other beers which undergo practically no storage, but are drunk within a few days of being racked into cask, these secondary yeasts are not needed, for the fermentation which takes place in the cask during those few days is virtually a continuation of the primary fermentation, and not a true conditioning in the strict sense of the term. It is for this reason that pure yeast, that is, yeast of a single species, has in such cases been found to give good results in English breweries whilst for stock ales it has invariably proved unsuitable. Owing to the presence of the alcohol, the carbon dioxide and the hop resin, all of which are bactericidal in varying degrees, beer is not at all a favorable medium for the growth of the vast majority of bacteria. There are, however, some which are capable of thriving in it, and these may very easily give rise to disastrous results. The certain bacteria, prominent among which is the bacteria aceti, promote the oxidation of some of the alcohol to acetic acid, and so cause the beer to become sour. In vinegar-making, this organism is intentionally used for the purpose of converting the alcoholic wash into acetic acid, and, indeed, vinegar could be made from beer in this manner. Certain other bacteria produce traces of butyric and other strong-smelling fatty acids, the presence of which, of course, renders the beer thus attacked quite undrinkable. Other bacteria again produce the condition known as ropiness, in which the beer has an oily appearance when poured from a vessel, or, in extreme cases, may be almost jelly-like in consistency. In practice, it is impossible to brew beer under such conditions as entirely to prevent the introduction of bacteria. 
and all that the brewer can do is, by paying the most unremitting attention to the cleanliness of his vessels and plant, and by excluding all but filtered air from the wort during certain portions of the process, to reduce the infection to a practically safe minimum. Given a sufficiency of the preservative constituents of the hop, and a constant development of carbon dioxide, conditioning, beers brewed under such conditions will keep sound for many months, and in the case of strong beers, where the larger percentage of alcohol helps, for years. End of chapter 6